Due to its length, this episode of Beyond Reality was divided into two parts. The interview with Dylan Howard starts in the first part with a discussion about the royal family split, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And in the second part of the interview, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are discussed in detail. Again, this interview is divided into two parts. This is the first of the two. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Wow. It's Tuesday night here, uh, and uh, I feel like I haven't done the show in two weeks, but it's only been a few days. We had a couple of best of programs, which, by the way, were really good best of shows. Uh, even though I'm not uh, in the studio managing those in, on occasion, I do listen in and I try to jump into chat regardless of where I am and what I'm doing. And I was really reminded at, at some of these great guests. I'm going to try to get some of them back on and get some updates on some of the stories. But it was uh, awesome, awesome to uh, get out of uh, upstate New York, even if it was just for a few days. I was able to jump on the Harley and go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which... Love that area. Absolutely love it. And uh, it was hot. I've got super sunburned. I know you can't really tell in this light, right? I'm trying to show it to the camera. Can't tell, but there's super sunburned arms. And um, just got to uh, got to uh, stretch my legs a little bit. So that was awesome. And I'm, I'm uh, happy I had a chance to do it. But I'm glad to be back as well because we've been talking about some terrific shows coming up. And now we're starting to get there. Uh, Some of these I've been waiting for for a long time, and tonight's is no exception. We're going to be talking with uh, Dylan Howard tonight. He is an investigative journalist and an author. He's written books about some of the most controversial uh, deaths, particularly in some cases murders uh, in the last 20, 30 years. Things like uh, Michael Jackson, Princess Diana. Um, And of course, Jeffrey Epstein. Or is it Epstein? I always get that wrong. Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, in addition to that, he's, ta- he's written about uh, Charles Manson, Natalie Wood, some really great subject matter. And we're going to talk about some of it tonight. Particularly, we're going to focus on uh, one of his books, his newest, I think it is, actually called Royals at War, the untold story of Harry and Meghan's shocking split with the House of Windsor. Windsor. Of course, we're talking about uh, Prince Harry. And uh, Megan uh, leaving the royal family. What does all that mean and why? Why would that happen? We'll talk about that. But we're also going to spend a good deal of time talking about uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and, and uh, Dylan's book, Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tales. This is going to be some great stuff. Looking forward to it. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tonight, we're back to live programming, and we have a really special discussion ahead of us tonight with our guest, Dylan Howard. Dylan is an investigative journalist. He's also an author. He's written books like Royals at War, The Untold Story of Harry and Meghan's Shocking Split with the House of Windsor, Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Diana Case Solved, and many, many others. Dylan, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you here tonight. 
So let's talk a little bit of how you got started with all of this. Um, not everybody wakes up and decides to go into journalism or even go in, going, going, go into being an author. You decided both along the way. How did it start for you? Well, I grew up with an appetite to tell stories. I guess many in my family would suggest that I was a gossiper. Um, and I actually wrote a uh, newsletter for our family called the Howard Family News in Australia. And I would photocopy it and distribute it to everyone inside the, inside the family, 20-odd people. Um, not the immediate family, but the extended family. Um, and I had always wanted to be a reporter. I grew up in a coastal community in Australia of about 250,000 people. It had a six-day-a-week newspaper owned by Rupert Murdoch, and I contacted the editor-in-chief at about age 14 and said, I want to write for you. And from age 14 to, to 17, I wrote their television coverage. Um, so, God, think about that now. I'm 38 so I've really been a journalist for 24 years, which is frightening. <laughs> um, and uh, I then graduated from high school, went to uh, the most prestigious uh, journalism school in Australia before changing to another college so that I could continue my studies off campus because I ultimately was offered what was called, or what is called in Australia, a cadetship which is effectively like an apprenticeship as a, journal, as a full-time journalist at the Geelong Advertiser, this newspaper that I'd been writing for. And so began my, um, my career in journalism. And I think that everywhere that I've worked, and I've worked in Australia in newspapers, I've worked in radio, I worked on television as a, a television correspondent, um, I've worked in the celebrity tabloids. I've worked at Reuters in New York City covering the United Nations. I've always brought a very distinct brand of journalism to the table, and it's not for everyone, but it is a, um, an unmitigated desire to shine a bright light on a dark place. And it takes me down subject matters that is often controversial. And... It is my forte. It is my brand of journalism. Some don't like it. Others do. Um, but it is what it is. Dylan, how does uh, someone uh, who goes into journalism decide to start uh, looking under the, the rocks that not maybe other people aren't looking under uh, and, and, and really delve into what we would call uh, investigative journalism, which is really a whole different brand. It's really a, a, a subset to itself. Well, I, I often say, you know, having managed newsrooms for the last uh, 13 years, there is a difference between a journalist and a reporter. A reporter is someone who curates, aggregates, and doesn't necessarily break any new ground. A journalist is someone who um, wears out the shoe leather on their shoes, door knocks. I always used to say to my staff, if there is a press conference uh, at a major news story, I don't expect to see you on the video on television 
because the press conference is the last place I want you to go because everyone else is there. The story is not there. The story is elsewhere. And um, you're absolutely right. And, And not to segue into sort of where we are as an industry at the moment. Um, But I would say that the media landscape is becoming more and more polarised and it would be fair to say trust in the media is at a record low because I don't think anyone's practising honest and non-partisan reporting. The goal of a journalist is to bring its readers or his or her readers, viewers or listeners, accurate information so that they can form their own opinions about various topics. Instead, what I'm seeing is most of the media is now largely agenda-driven journalism. And I personally passionately believe that that bias is destroying journalism. I am so glad to hear you say that. Because as a consumer of media and journalism, uh, I feel that way. And I feel like I can't find a news source that just gives me the news. I'm, I feel like every channel I'm turning to or uh, paper, if you want to even call them papers anymore, I'm reading uh, is trying to preach to me about something, not just give me information. Both the right, JV, and the left have become weaponized. I think a lot of this is being driven from the White House itself. The president has undoubtedly fanned the flames with his fake news cries and lies that he has uh, told the American public. And now journalists have seemingly become activists on the left and right, lost their bipartisanship because they have an effort to ensure that either Trump is not elected or is elected. Right. And that has distorted the state of the current media industry that I once adored. And I just don't adore it anymore. I don't watch television news. I can't. Because I can see that every story is told with a political affiliation. And those tendencies on the left and right can be attributed to the push for profits because those in the ivory towers understand that there is a captive audience for Trump-bashing content and a captive audience for pro-Trump coverage. But that's not what we, as journalists, were taught. The core function of a journalist is to strive to be a bastion of impartiality. And the reality is we're living in a time that... um, that is devoid of that. This wasn't on my list of questions, but based on what you've just said in the last minute or two here, I, I want to get your opinion on a couple of things that have been in the news recently. And we'll do this quickly. Uh, but recently, the Washington Post was just uh, just had to settle a, a quarter of a billion dollar lawsuit brought from, um, and I don't remember the boy's name, a 16-year, I believe. Nicholas Sandman. Yes, yes, whereby a, a video was edited to make this young man look bad. Um, and I don't know if our listeners will remember, but it was it was a rally. It was in Washington, D.C., and uh, he was on a school trip, and I think it was even a, an abortion protest rally. And uh, another uh, 
gentleman got in his face with a with a drum and he was chanting. I don't even know the details. I don't remember it that clearly. But he was defamed and he ended up winning or at least settling out of court a major lawsuit against the Washington Post and the C- and CNN both for doing that. What are your thoughts on that story? He, he also sought and won a judge, or no, not a judgment, but a settlement against CNN prior to that. He's represented by a one-time former foe of mine, Lynn Wood, um, who is probably one of the finest um, uh, plaintiff's attorneys this country has seen. He has represented famous individuals like Richard Jewell, uh, uh, John Benet Ramsey's father, John oh, Ramsey, yeah. uh, the family of Natalie Holloway and others against media organisations that prior to the word or the inception of the word clickbait would use their platforms to exploit a heinous situation. In this particular situation with the Covington team, um, the Washington Post, CNN and others have already settled. But it certainly looks like this is not the last. Right. Um, What happened today was that CNN, its media reporter, Brian Stelter, retweeted um, a lawandcrime.com article. Now, Brian Stelter is the host of CNN's Reliable Sources, and he's far from a reliable source. Um, (laughs) He is by far one of the most significant um, partisan reporters that CNN has ever seen. You only need to watch his Sunday morning show to understand that. But he retweeted the analysis of a lawyer, not connected to the case, about how much this supposedly cost CNN. Now, there is a confidentiality provision associated with this settlement. And that retweet, um, according to lawyers for Nicholas Sandman, is in violation of the confidential settlement. So uh, the law, the, the lawyer, um, Lynn Wood, has suggested that he and CNN are going to find themselves facing uh, litigation again over this matter. And, I, and I'll ask you quickly about one other uh, news item. Uh, there was a group of doctors that stood in front of the Supreme Court Uh, the other day, gave a press conference talking about the benefits of uh, hydroxychloroquine as a COVID-19 treatment uh, and talking about some of the other things that have been circulating in the news regarding uh, lockdowns and and children in schools. These were doctors. They were offering their opinion. This video was quickly removed from YouTube, from uh, Google search, and from Facebook and labeled as misinformation. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a disgrace. Um, there is obviously two camps of thought when it comes to this particular drug. The president has shared his version that this drug is worth taking. I think that's hogwash. I don't listen to the president when it comes to COVID-19. Right. I listen to others. And I'm prepared to accept the various voices in the room that may challenge whether or not uh, 
hydroxychloroquine, it's a very hard drug to pronounce. <laughs> yes, it is. Is a effective or ineffective treatment for COVID-19. But at a time when there is no vaccine or preventative drug, I think medical experts should be considered and their voices shouldn't be silenced. We are now facing a situation in this country where Facebook, Twitter and YouTube are becoming the arbiter, the arbiter of what is news, what is true and what is not. Right. And that's a very slippery slope to slide down. I mean, uh, that is massive amounts of control. When you control, when you are the spigot for what would, I don't know what the figure is, it's got to be at least 80%, maybe it's 90% of information flow. Uh, when you're that spigot, you have a lot of power. Yeah, but also, in fairness, when the president stands at the podium at the White House, he also has that similar megaphone. And let's not forget, the president has said, ludicrous things about the coronavirus has appeared ill-informed and uneducated. And the reality is he too has um, corrupted what should be a healthy dialogue when a nation should be united around its desire to beat this disease. This is our world war of our generation. Yeah, it is. And it's split down ideological lines. And that's a travesty in my view. I agree with you. Um, Let's move on and talk more about your investigative journalistic work. Uh, You've done a lot, and we're going to cover a bunch of it. um, But when you first went down that path, um, tell me about maybe what you'd consider to be your first success. Maybe the first rock you lifted up, found an aha underneath it, and, and wrote about it. You know, I covered professional football in Australia and as a one-team town, the football club in the professional league was incredibly important to the community. The stadium was renamed and a new sponsor had taken over the multi-million dollar sponsorship of this Stadium, and I distinctively remember. And I actually, at Christmas time, I went about four hours outside of where I live in Australia, and with my former editor in chief to visit a former colleague, um, who who actually was the colleague who employed me. And I was recounting this story to him. We knew that someone had acquired the rights of renaming this stadium and I was desperate to find out who it was and so I literally went through because this was two decades ago uh, the white pages and called every major business in the city and posed the question of them and it was when I got an evasive response from a company called Baytech that I realized I had it and Ultimately, I was able to confirm it with sources and we splashed on it the next day. It's that type of determination to want to find out information that can often set a journalist and a reporter apart from others. Um, I just enjoy it. I'm not saying that's, uh, 
you know, I shouldn't be lauded for breaking a story like that, but I do enjoy being able to look at a story or look at an issue and try and put some context and perspective into it through in-depth reporting. That is what's lost these days. There are a lot of people in the media masquerading as journalists that simply don't do a modicum of investigation. And, uh, you know, Bo Dietl, who is a former New York police detective with more arrests than anyone else, um, he and I were talking and he said, you know, the way that you practice journalism, Dylan, is very much like that of a detective. It's very, very similar. And that, that, was, that was nice to hear that, that someone else can see that two professions are very similar, albeit one less consequential than the other. You, um, you've investigated and written about some very, very high-profile uh, cases and names, just to name a few. Uh, obviously, Jeffrey Epstein, we're going to talk about that, Princess Diana, uh, Michael Jackson, Natalie Wood, and others. Along the way, as you start uh, looking into these cases and uncovering things that others haven't, you must have ruffled some feathers. Anything um, ever get a little dicey for you? I've been, I, I was threatened uh, by the Hollywood actor Charlie Sheen with taking my life. He rang me one day and, and, and said if I continued to write stories about him, he would have me killed. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I I carried a high-profile position for a long period of time. I understand I am a public figure. I write books. I produce documentaries and podcasts. So it comes with the territory. Um, I've had private security uh, have to uh, follow my shadow, if you like, many, many times. Yeah with controversial stories because of threats that have been leveled against me. Um, But, you know, it comes with the territory. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, uh, you know, I I fully understand that if I'm prepared to go down the rabbit hole, be careful what you might well find. Speaking of Charlie Sheen, you you, uh, shined some light into his antics in his life, didn't you? I did. I mean, it it, it was an interesting story because... I had known that Sheen was HIV positive, and I had convened a, a meeting of my uh, staff, senior editorial staff, and I, I took a vote. Did, do we publish this story? There were seven people in the room, and the vote was 6-1. The dissenting voice was myself. Hmm. Everyone on my staff said, yes, we published this story. The reason I... And, and this... this by no means uh, is a democracy in a newsroom. It's a dictatorship in some respects. Um, I overruled them because I didn't believe that one person's medical condition was all that important to be exposed. It wasn't until I unraveled a conspiracy at the upper echelons of Hollywood whereby lawyers were profiteering from claims because Sheen had orchestrated what I had dubbed a sex contract. That is, anyone that came inside his house had to sign a non-disclosure agreement that prevented them from, if, God forbid, they contracted HIV from him, from going to court and blowing the whistle on him. But they'd have to go to arbitration. 
And to me, this was akin to racketeering. Sure. Uh, It it was a criminal conspiracy, in my view, because at that time, um, not telling someone that you are HIV positive was a felony crime in California. It has subsequently been reduced to a misdemeanor. Um, That is when I made the decision to publish the story, because it was well within the public's purview to understand the health risk that Charlie Sheen posed. Now, he threatened to kill me two years earlier. He was not particularly a fan probably not on the Christmas card list either. Um, But it was a story well worth telling, a hell of a story, and one which broke down uh, in many ways to Sheen's benefit, this racket whereby he was paying out hundreds of, and and I'm I'm, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of millions of dollars for victims to keep their mouths shut. Wow. Wow. That also, if I remember correctly, that particular case was kind of, um, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, but it's kind of started to open up people's eyes to some of the other things going on in the Hollywood upper echelon and maybe even, you know, open the door to this whole Me Too movement and particularly with the Weinstein case. Um, I do think that this was probably the start of a lot of, the uh, subsequent coverage that ensued about looking into people's activities. And I do think that Sheen needed to be exposed, as uh, many other people uh, needed to be exposed. But what I do think is that there has been no proportionality in the uh, Me Too movement. Uh, One can be convicted of guilt by association. And... Again, that comes back to the notion of how the media operates. If you are perceived to be someone on the right, the left will come after you. And we're living in a culture that has been described as the cancel culture. It's a cancerous culture, in my view. We are overcompensating in these situations. Is um, Royals at War your latest book? Uh, The latest book that came out was uh, Bad, Money, Power, Betrayal, an unprecedented investigation into the Michael Jackson cover-up. But it it came out a week after uh, Royals at War. Okay, gotcha. Let's talk about Royals at War a little bit. Of course, the the full title is Royals at War, the untold story of Harry and Meghan's shocking split with the House of Windsor. Now, Given the fact that we don't have a monarchy here in the United States, I think a lot of a lot of what the British monarchy does and how that family operates is a little um, unclear to most Americans. You know, we hear these headlines, we get a taste of it, but I'm not sure we completely understand what's happening. Describe for us what what the split actually was. Well, to understand the split and to understand the context of Harry and Meghan's decision to leave the royal family, you have to understand what the royal family, the House of Windsor, represents. And that is uh, an institution that is hundreds of years old. They've not always been known as the Windsors. They changed their name because of German affiliation at the turn of the century. Um, But it is a very uh, autocratic institution that is governed by procedures, protocols, 
representation of behaviour that they must represent, because they represent the people of the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth countries, including my own country, Australia. I am a monarchist. I believe in the monarchy uh, as an institution. I think that they represent, in most scenarios, the very best in what society should be. They are a figurehead ceremonial uh, organisation. But they have run afoul in recent times and over, I mean, many, many years, dating back to Princess Diana's death, um, their treatment and their behaviour has been scrutinised. The reason that Harry's decision to leave the monarchy was so significant was the fact that he had been the rebellious royal that was adored by the British public. I think in polls he was the most popular royal family member. They grew up loving him and empathising with him because of his mother's untimely death. The reality was Harry, from a very young age, just did not really want to be in the royal family. He blamed them for the intrusion upon um, what should have been a secluded life for Diana, and he also blamed the British media. So when he found love with Meghan Markle and she couldn't operate within the confines of the royal family because she was effectively muzzled, she wasn't able to respond to what was racist media coverage from British tabloids, he felt like this was a redo of Diana. And it was a catalyst for him to abdicate from the family, which is the biggest crisis since 1936, when King Edward gave up the crown for the woman he loved. And that was Wallace Simpson, a, an American divorcee, very similar to Meghan Markle, an American divorcee. This time, Meghan Markle just happened to be of mixed race. And... Um, that really, the fact that Megan was of mixed race really uh, made her a target of the British tabloids. You've written about Princess Diana's death. Um, I don't know what your conclusions are, uh, but there's a lot of talk that this was not an accident and there's much more to the story than that. Did Prince Harry believe there was much more to the story than what the official account is? I believe that the royal family knows what took place and remains frustrated that they can't um, get a final conclusion. The fact of the matter was the man behind the wheel of the Mercedes-Benz, Henri Paul, was three times the legal limit uh, in terms of blood alcohol. The reality was there were four members in that car. Three of them were not wearing a seatbelt. Three of them died. The one who was wearing a seatbelt, the bodyguard, Trevor Reese jones survived the smash. In Diana Case Closed, a book I wrote with an Australian homicide detective, uh, Colin McLaren, 
we were able to forensically reveal for the very first time how this accident occurred. And it wasn't the ensuing paparazzi. Just think about this for a moment. This was a car racing through the late night streets of Paris at speeds I can't even begin to fathom. And the paparazzos were on motorcycles, 50 cc's. They were nowhere near the tunnel when it, that Mercedes-Benz careered into the 13th pylon. What has been established through eyewitness accounts, through paint that was identified on the Mercedes-Benz, is that the Mercedes-Benz clipped a white Fiat Uno as that white Fiat Uno merged into the tunnel. It sent the Mercedes-Benz careering into the sky. It hit a concrete pylon, came back down, careered uncontrollably into the 13th pylon of the tunnel. Eyewitnesses say the white Fiat Uno was seen leaving the scene. That car banged up. The driver of that vehicle is a man by the name of Lee Van Tan. Lee Van Tan has refused to answer questions except for one police interview with French authorities. He has been requested multiple times to appear before the Royal Commission into Diana's death. And I spoke to him last year in Paris. I went to his house in suburban Paris and had a lengthy conversation with him. And he told me, and I paraphrase, that he had no intention of talking to authorities about what took place and that he had been told by French authorities not to talk about what took place that night. So the French are harbouring the truth about what happened to Diana. And I think they're harbouring it because they don't want a French national national to be blamed for the death of the woman who was adored by so many and 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 was viewed as the queen of hearts the world over. Um, this was a simple car accident. I don't blame Lee Van Tan. Lee Van Tan just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Um, I blame the drunk driver and I blame the Al-Fayeds who ultimately were protecting Diana Henri Paul worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed and there was, there was an obvious duty of care that was not afforded to Princess Diana in allowing her to set foot in a vehicle that was being driven by a man drunk as a skunk. And what was the situation, and we're kind of jumping around here, but what was the situation with the car itself, the Mercedes? So there have there has been rumours that the uh, Mercedes had been involved in a car accident previously and had been rebuilt. I don't subscribe to that theory. Um, the overwhelming evidence points to Lee Van Tan's white Fiat Uno. In fact, Lee Van Tan spray-painted the white Fiat Uno on the night in question with his brother, bright red. There is a photograph of Lee Van Tan sitting in the car and you can see the white paint um, in areas where they haven't painted it completely. 
So um, Lee Van Tan is the unanswered and untold story yeah. about the death of Princess Diana. So Prince Harry, is all his life, is basically dealing with this death of his mother. I mean, we forget sometimes that that was his mother, in addition to being a public figure. And um, he starts to become disillusioned with the royal family and decides to leave. What does it mean when a prince decides to leave the royal family? I mean, your blood doesn't change, obviously. What does the actual departure involve? Well, it means that you're no longer on the British taxpayer's dollar. Um, You're not afforded a luxurious residence, you're not afforded a staff, and there is no requirement for you to perform as a member of the royal family. Although largely ceremonial, a lot of it is uh, work that is done on a philanthropic level. Now, Harry has pledged to continue to do that, and and I must give him and Megan credit that they have, uh, during the middle of COVID-19, delivered meals to those in need at a time when they've just moved to Los Angeles, I think they have the ability to, through their foundation, Archwell, to become the most powerful organisation on the planet. If you think back to when Lance Armstrong created Livestrong prior to all his drug confessions, it was considered one of the most powerful organisations in the world. And I think that's what represents itself to Harry and Meghan. I must say, though, to abdicate from the monarchy on the basis that you want out of the limelight, it's certainly odd to move to Los Angeles (laughs) where the limelight shines brighter than anywhere else. Boise, Idaho might have been a better choice. Um, tell, talk a little bit more about how racism played a part in this, particularly as it relates to Megan. Um, from the moment that she was involved in Harry, with Harry, the British public was suspecting of her Hollywood connections. The coverage in the media often talked about Uh, various things that she did, not conforming to royal rules, breaking royal protocol, and things like that. In defence of the royal family, the Queen knew that a mixed-race princess was critically important to the modernisation of the monarchy. At age 93, she went through extensive, extensive... Um, instances whereby she tried to welcome Megan into the family. She took her on her private train to a public engagement when her and Harry were just dating. That's not something the royal family affords to anyone until you get married. She gave her diamond jewels. She gave her the pick of jewellery for the wedding. But Megan ruffled everyone's feathers inside that family. We detail how her and Kate just did not get along. And there was an unbreakable bond between Harry and William. And the catalyst for the issues between these four people that were colloquially known as the Fab Four um, 
date back to when Harry confronted, uh, sorry, William confronted Harry and asked a question that I would expect my brother to ask me if I was getting married. Is she the one? Harry took it as an affront, that it was racist, and that began the great abdication crisis of 2019. There were many other instances when Megan, um, I always like to say ruffled royal feathers just because it's uh, alliteration, um, but uh, she uh, fell out with uh, Catherine, the um, Duchess, over a decision that she made about the wedding to not have Princess Charlotte, Catherine's and William's daughter, wear leggings when members of the royal family are not supposed to wear leggings. Who would have thought that I'd ever be investigating leggings? <laughs> but I have. And she said, Royal Convention states that you must cover up whether you're a child or not. Megan said, absolutely not. And so um, Princess Charlotte did not wear leggings to the wedding. And it was the succession of all of these instances, the turnover of staff within their household. Five people either quit or were reassigned within months of them getting married. Allegations of overspending, allegations of using the taxpayer dollar to remodel their house, Frogmore Cottage, to have such things as a yoga room. It was these things that were picked up by the media and began to create this obsession with Harry and Meghan as a couple. For I'll give you another example. Okay. The royal family was, was riled by the fact that um, Meghan refused to follow royal convention by walking outside a hospital and showing off baby Archie to the world or to the British public as an heir to the throne. Instead, she went home, and two weeks later, they did a photo call. And the royal family was not impressed by that. These strict codes that have been in place for decades were snubbed by this royal couple, and they didn't want to be living in this gilded cage. Um, Harry was infatuated and remains infatuated with Meghan. Um, and his desire to modernise the monarchy was inconsistent with how the Queen and other members of the household wanted to modernise the monarchy. Dylan, is all of this just a, a is this a crack in the facade of of the English monarchy that will split open, or is this ultimately just going to be a, a footnote in history over time? Uh, it's a fascinating question. I think that the release of a forthcoming book in which they have said to have participated, Harry and Meghan is likely to cause significant tension between the royal family in Britain and the royal family here, being Harry and Meghan. In fact, they were told uh, upon their departure from the royal family that they were unable to use the royal monikers, HRH and 
there were some limitations about the use of uh, their monikers, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, that was bestowed upon them by the Queen when they got married. But what the Queen has is the right to take that away. And if she very much believes that Harry and Meghan have done wrong, then the Queen, who is an avid believer in every element of tradition within the royal family, she has the ability to strip them of that. And let's also not forget, um, when one becomes uh, disconnected from the royal family, things can go badly. Dare I mention Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew, Sarah Ferguson, Prince Edward. When you've had to sing for your supper, these royals have had a very bad tune. And that's what the monarchy fears the most, is that Harry and Meghan in LA could end up on the wrong side of history and they could be involved in something that is controversial that has the potential to tar or even bring down the British monarchy. We're talking with Dylan Howard tonight. Dylan is an investigative reporter, also an author, many books to his credit, including Royals at War, The Untold Story of Harry and Meghan's Shocking Split with the House of Windsor, Diana K. Solved and Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tales. We're going to continue our conversation on the other side of this break. But before we go to break, Dylan, where can people buy your books? Um, they can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other online retailers. They are also... Uh, for sale at brick-and-mortar stores, and I think at a time when local businesses are suffering tremendously, I would encourage everybody to go to their local bookstore and support local businesses that have been so horrifically affected by COVID-19. You've been listening to the first of a two-part interview with Dylan Howard here on Beyond Reality. Be sure to listen to the second part in which Dylan discusses the Jeffrey Epstein case. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.